Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. People to help on September 15th. It's a Friday next month. Um, we're having the, the men's retreat or men's conference or I don't know what you want to call it. But anyways, uh, that Friday night, um, I've been tasked with making and providing a dessert for everybody um, after the, the evening session. And so we're going to make the pizzukis like we did. Um, when was that? Probably about a year, a year and a half ago, one Wednesday night. Um, but we're probably going to have to make close to 300 of them. So I need a, a handful of people um, to help with that. If that's something that you could do and want to do, please let me know. And uh, it would probably be from probably like 7 till 9, I'm guessing. both okay yeah so um yeah just let me know if that's something that you could do and uh i'll get you some more details um so yeah if you have your bible open to ephesians chapter five ephesians five did you guys know that erica got baptized on sunday that's pretty cool right yeah. Uh, Ephesians 5. I'm going to start in verse 1 reading and read through verse 14 again and pray for us. We're only going to look at verses 3 through 14 tonight, but kind of just for context, we'll read the first two verses as well. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ has also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Uh, and there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because, because of these things, uh, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, and now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all these things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, for Christ will shine his light upon you. I thank you, God, that you have awakened each one of us, and you've risen us from the dead, and Christ is shining his light on us, in us, and through us. I pray tonight you would teach us how to be better imitators of you, that we would learn how to be light, to walk in the light, and to practically be light to the lost world that needs your light, Lord. So I pray that you give us uh, divine illumination. You've already inspired your word. Now we need you to illuminate it to us 
so that we could understand it, Lord. So speak to your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're continuing our study of Paul's great epistle to the Ephesians, and we find ourselves in the fifth chapter. And we began this chapter last week with the first two verses. And in those first two verses, the apostle exhorted us to do two things. First, he exhorted us to be imitators of God. And second, he has exhorted us to walk in love. And I mentioned this last week, but chapter five really is a continuation of this thought that Paul started all the way back in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Uh, and in that, he started talking believers and encouraging believers to walk in the new life that God has given them. He exhorts us to take off the old man and to put on the new man. And this exhortation or these exhortations that Paul's giving they really reach their crescendo in chapter 5 when he exhorts us to be imitators of God in verse 1. And in the preceding verses, we are told to imitate God in three ways. By walking in love, by walking in light, and by walking circumspectly, King James says, or walking in wisdom. And now these ideas of walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom, or walking in truth, they're not just moral things or good things or things that we should do. They're much more than that. They're actually characteristics of God himself. For instance, God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. God is light. That's 1 John 1, 5. And God is truth. In Hebrews 6, 18, it says it's impossible for God to lie. He's the embodiment of truth. He's 100% truth. He cannot lie. And this is how Pauline theology and ethics really work. First, we see God, who God is, and from there we can make practical applications on how we should live. In other words, our ethics should be determined by the character and the nature of God. We see this in Paul's writing style. Look at the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we're talking about things like who God is, who we are in light of God is, what God's done to save us, all the blessings that we have because God has saved us. And then starting in verse 4, or chapter 4, he's going to spend the next three chapters, or the second half of the book, informing us how to live in light of who God is. And he uses this metaphor to walk over and over again. It's the Greek word peripateo. And it literally, uh, it's, it's a metaphor that he's using to speak of how we're to live, how we're to conduct our life, what the life of the believer is should look like based on who God is. And we've already been exhorted a few times on how we should walk. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us to walk or live in a worthy manner. And then we find that we're to walk in unity. We're to walk in purity. We're to walk in love. And tonight we're going to look at walking in light. In all these ways, we're to be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, to be an imitator of God really is a tall task. I don't know if I could think of a more difficult or a greater task to be asked to do than to be like God. When we think of the ramifications of this statement, it could be rather discouraging. I could get rather bummed out. I could be like, hey, this is impossible. You're asking me to do something I literally don't have the ability to do. You're asking me to, to be like God. Well, I, I want us to look at, uh, to flip back a couple chapters to chapter three real quick. 
And I, I think this might be a little bit encouraging for us if we look at Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 14 for the church in Ephesus. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. So Paul's praying that we'd be strengthened with dunamis power through the Spirit so Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith and that we could be rooted and grounded in love and understand the dimensions of Christ's love. But then Paul says this. He says, then we will be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's amazing. He's going to fill us with the fullness of God. And if we're filled with the fullness of God, it's not going to be difficult to be an imitator of God. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If God is what's filling our inside, it's going to be what's going to be revealed on the outside as well. It should come naturally. If we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to be filled with God and will naturally become imitators of God. Now, we're supposed to be imitators of God in the area of light, right? God is spoken of as light. In 1 John 1.5, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. In Him, there is no darkness at all. Not only is God the Father light, but Jesus speaks of himself as light as well. In John 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light or the, word, the, the light of life. Uh, so God's spoken of, of life as light. Jesus speaks of himself as light. But God's word is also spoken of as light. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, but but it's just we have God the Father, Jesus, the word of God, all being spoken of as light. But also the salvation that God brings to sinners is referred to as light as well in, in, the, in the New Testament. Uh, in First John or First Peter two nine, it says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." This is the type of light that Paul is going to speak of in our passage here in Ephesians five. We were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. It's speaking of the salvation that God brings. It's a form of light. So light represents the presence of God in the world. It represents the word of God. It re represents the salvation brought about by God in the world. And it represents the person of Jesus Christ. If we're walking in light, we're going to reflect all three of those. And it's no wonder that Paul is saying if we want to be imitators of followers of God, we need to walk in light. Jesus said it this way in our regards of, as being followers or imitators of God and being light. Matthew 5, 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what being an imitator of God is in being light, right? We're to shine our light so people see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Uh, this passage before us tonight is one of great contrasts. Right? We have the contrast of light and darkness. It's a pretty big contrast. We have the contrast of the children of God and the sons of disobedience. That's a pretty good contrast, right? You're either a child of God or you're a child of disobedience, a child of the devil. You can't get a starker contrast there. In other words, I think Paul's trying to tell us there should be a sharp contrast between us and non-believers. The, the way that we live should be completely different than the way that the world lives. And not only should there be a contrast between us and unbelievers, there should be a contrast between us now and the way we were before we were believers. Our, our life should look completely different because we were once darkness and now we are light in the Lord. In the scriptures, darkness really represents four things. It re represents depravity or man's fallen nature. It represents deception. Those don't know who, who don't know the truth. They're in darkness. It represents death. And it represents, fourthly, the destruction in hell. Remember, hell is described as a place of outer darkness. In other words, darkness really is a world without God's grace and revelation. It's a world that's left to its own. It's a world without God interfering or interfering intervening for its benefit. Before God began his work of creation, the world was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Before Christ came, the Gentiles lived in darkness. Matthew 4.16 says, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of er, shadow of death upon them light dawned from that time jesus began to preach and say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so the, the child of god should never be classified as darkness we should never be in the dark we were once darkness and now we're light in the lord and i want to reiterate this is something that happened at conversion in colossians paul tells us that we were translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light so you're no longer darkness, but you're light in the Lord. That happened. We were positionally moved from darkness to light. We have, uh, we've had our, our, our clothes changed. We put off the old man. We put on the new man. That's something that God did for us and to us at conversion. Now the idea is we need to practically live that out. We need to grow in that. We need to do that in a way that the world begins to see and recognize, hey, there's something about them. They're, they're changed. It looks like they're living in the light now. It looks like they're different. In our text, we're going to see that living or walking in light primarily involves three things. It involves exalting God and not idols. It involves exhibiting the fruit of light, and it involves exposing the darkness. So for letter A, fill in the word God and idols. Walking in light involves exalting God and not idols. In verse 3, he says, but immorality or impurity or greed must not 
even be named among you as proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In verse 2, we're told that we're to imitate but God by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We're to model God's love by loving people unconditionally and forgiving people without counting. Sometimes 70 times, seven times, Jesus says. Right? Because the greatest display of love is forgiveness. That's the way that we're going to most be able to manifest God's love is by forgiving others when they hurt us. Because that's the way that God first manifests his love in our life is by forgiving us from, from our sins. I mentioned last week that forgiveness is really the key that opens the door to all of God's other blessings. You can't experience those unless you first experience his forgiveness. So we really need to learn to see forgiveness as an opportunity to manifest the love of God to the world. To a dark world that desperately needs the love of God is going to primarily see it in the way that we forgive one another. But whatever God does, Satan is going to try to counterfeit. That, that's, what Paul, that's why Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an agent of light in 2 Corinthians 12. And this includes imitating God's love and offering counterfeits for God's love. And these counterfeits are especially dangerous because they appeal to our fallen nature. In other words, these, these counterfeits that that Satan's going to offer us uh, in, instead of God's love are the very things that we desire, the very things that our flesh longs for. So, so we need to be aware of them. We need to be on guard, and we need to be willing and ready to say no. And the problem with these counterfeit forms of love that Satan's going to offer us is the fruit that they're going to produce. You see, God's love produces life and joy. Satan's counterfeits for love produce death and misery. So we need to be weary of these counterfeit forms of love. Number one, we need to see and heed God's warning signs. So fill in the word see and heed. And we see that in verses three and four. It says, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which is not fitting. See, God creates love. and Satan's going to counterfeit it with lust. And this lust is going to come in many different forms. First, it comes in sexual immorality. This is the Greek word porneia, which is the word that we get pornography from. Older translations may have the word fornication instead of sexual immorality or immorality. And this speaks of all kinds of sexual perversion, or any type of sexual act outside of the marriage bed. And unfortunately, today we have to define the marriage bed as between man and wife. Uh, you see, in, in Leviticus 18, God lays down his, the sexual ethics that he wants his people to have. He says, when you come into the land that I'm giving you, the, the land of Canaan, 
I don't want you to act the way that the Canaanites, the people who were there before you, I want you to act differently. And because of that, you're not going to produce, uh, practice homosexuality. You're not going to practice bestiality. You're not going to practice fornication. You're not going to be sleeping with outsiders. All of these things are listed in Leviticus 18. Now, the first few times I read Leviticus 18, I was kind of shocked. I was like, well, God has to tell people not to sleep with animals. Like you would think that would be kind of a given, you know, why is that? Why is that in God's word? And then I realized why. It's because that's what the people in the land of Canaan were doing. And God is bringing his people into the land. He wants them to be a holy people. He wants them to be distinct from the people who were there before them. And so he has to tell them, hey, you're not going to practice sexual activities the way that the people in Canaan have. And can I tell you something? The people living around us are living in all kinds of sexual perversion, and God wants us to live differently than them. Those same things that applied to the Israelites going into Canaan apply to us today. There's no shortage of sexual perversion in our world, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you that. You see, sexual immorality is always at the front of Paul's list of sins in the New Testament because it's the most prevalent and it's the most damaging sin that there is. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 6, that it, it, every other sin is outside the body. But sexual immorality, uh, you're sinning against your own body. It, it's going to cause great harm for you, your witness, for the person that you're doing it with. I like what John Corson had to say about sexual immorality. He said, according to Proverbs 6.32, he who is involved in fornication or adultery destroys his soul, his inner person. The world doesn't understand this. The world thinks fornication is nothing more than two bodies coming together in a moment of ecstasy. But the Bible says it's actually two souls being joined as one. Thus, a person who engages in fornication, who lives in adultery, will become a shell of a person as layer and layer of his inner person is stripped away with each different encounter. That's the tragedy of sexual sin. The issue is not AIDS, sexual transmitted disease, or unwanted pregnancy. The issue is that of losing part of one's soul. See, it's going to cause great harm to you and to everybody else. And this sin is nothing new either. There was great prevalence of sexual sin in the ancient world, especially in Ephesus. They had these temples to Artemis and, and to Diana, the Ephesians, where people would go and they would actually pay money to sleep with prostitutes in an effort to worship God. They had these temple prostitutes that you would go and commit these abominable acts with in an act of worship to either Artemis or Diana. It was usually done... Uh, usually a lot of times male on male, usually a male with a young boy. But but women were involved too. In fact, I just read the other day that uh, it, that women were required at least once in their life to go and to give their bodies to have sex with a stranger at least once in the temple. That was their service to their country. That was their service to the god Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. This is how pervasive it is. This is how depraved we can become when God removes his grace and gives us over to his, our impure hearts. You see, we think our sexual ethics are bad now. No, 
because it could get a whole lot worse. It's going to get a whole lot worse as God continues to remove his grace from us as we plunge down the slide of depravity. But sexual sin we're seeing today, it's nothing new. It's going to get worse and worse. We need to see the effects of sexual sin. And we need to start making excuses for sexual sin. And we need to heed God's warning concerning sexual sin. And Paul's now going to move on from sexual immorality to impurity. This word impurity, it's a little bit different than immorality. The word actually comes from a, a, the description of a, a, of a rotten or an infected wound. You know, uh, when I was sick and, and I was getting diagnosed with having the infection in my soldier, shoulder, which was going to cause all these surgeries, uh, I remember and, and towards the beginning of it, I, I went to the doctor's and they stuck a syringe in my shoulder and they pulled out 35 cc's of pus. That's how we diagnosed that it was infected. And I remember a few days later, I went out to breakfast with one of my friends. And we came back to my house and he's looking at me and he's looking at me kind of weird. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, you know, your shoulder's bleeding. And I'm like, what? And I go inside and I look in the mirror and there's a little bit of blood here. And so I take off my shirt and it's kind of puffy. I push on it. And just all kinds of just blood and pus and water. This mixer just starts gushing out. It starts pouring out of it and just coming out and coming out and coming out. And that's what always comes to mind when I picture this word impurity. Right? It's rotten and infected skull that just spews forth sexual immorality. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says this, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, he had this impurity in his heart. He had this sickness, this infection, this corruption that comes out and expresses itself as adultery or lust or whatever kind of sexual impurity it is. And third, he says there must not be any greed or covetousness. This seems a little out of place, when we, but when we take a closer examination, we, we see that all forms of immorality are really greed or covetousness. You see, God's love is sacrificial. It's giving. It, it, it seeks to please others. But lust is the opposite, really. It's selfish. It takes. It seeks to please self. It's all about what can I get? It has nothing to do with what can I give, is the idea. In Exodus 20, verse 17, in part of the Decalogue, God is giving the Ten Commandments. He says this, You shall not cover your neighbor's house, and you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. You see, there's a direct implication in the Ten Commandments that part of covetousness is going to have to do with in the areas of sex. It's going to be lusting after and wanting something that isn't ours. And can I say something? People all around the world are living in all kinds of sexual perversion. Our culture is greedy for sex. Our culture is greedy for pleasure. Our culture is greedy for sexual gratification. And there's no shortage of opportunities to gratify oneself. I remember this one time I was out street witnessing and I was at the block of orange and, and typically what I would do is I'll walk around and, and I'll look for people that are they're just kind of sitting around not really doing anything. And so I'm walking around the mall kind of looking for my next mark. 
and I see a few guys sitting on a bench right outside of a, a woman's clothing store. Right. And so I figure this is perfect. Their wives are probably in there shopping. They're sitting there bored. I'm going to go tell them why they need Jesus. Like, and, and I walk up and I, I start talking. And this one guy in the middle, he's just he's not really paying attention to me. He, he seems really distracted. Um, but I really felt like the Lord was like pointing me to him. So I take a step closer to him and, and try to grab his attention. And he, he, start, he looks up at me and then he's looking back down at his phone. And I glance down at his phone, and right there in the middle of the mall, while his wife is in there shopping, he's looking at porn on his phone. And he sees that I saw. He gets all embarrassed, and he gets up, and, and he runs away. But I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, now that is addicted, right? I mean, you, you can't even, you know, go to the mall with shopping with your wife without pulling out your phone and trying to satisfy your sexual desires. And I share this to illustrate how bad this problem is in our society, just how much people are greedy to, sexual, to satisfy their sexual lusts. See, greed is really an interesting sin because no one thinks that they're greedy. Not once have I had someone come to me and say, I want to confess greed to you. I'm a greedy person. That's never happened. You see, so this tells me it's an area that we need to especially look out for that we're especially susceptible to, right? That, that we don't see in ourselves. It's an area we need to make sure that we're not being deceived in. And next we, next, we need to make sure we aren't given to filthiness, foolish talk, or coarse jesting. We need to watch our mouths. Those that like to practice sexual immorality, they like to talk about it. They like to make jokes about it. You know, there's the type of person that could take anything that you say and turn it in to a dirty joke. Uh, you ladies probably aren't exposed to as much of that as us guys are, but for guys, that, that there's a lot of us that, that do that. You just make anything a joke, right? And an impure joke. Well, a quick wit is a blessing. It, it really is. However, a good wit with a darkened heart is a curse which brings filthiness and foolish talking. Paul says these things aren't to be named among the saints. And, and by saints, he isn't meaning like these super hyper-spiritual people, these people that are like the, 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 the top dog Christians. No, he's mentioning every believer. Everyone who's in Christ is a saint. So all of this it, it should not be a part of any Christian's behavior or vocabulary. It's the idea. And it's interesting to me that greed amounts to idolatry. If we could, because really, all sins are a form of greed, or a form of idolatry, I'm sorry. It's not just greed. Yeah, greed is a form of idolatry, because we want something more than we want God. We want something more than we want, you know, our neighbor's good, right? That's what makes us greedy. But if you think about it, every sin is really a form of idolatry. If we could learn to get the first commandment down, if we could learn to keep the first commandment, we really wouldn't have a need for the other nine. Because every violation of a commandment is also a violation of the first one. If I don't honor my parents, it's because I have some other God in front of me. Right? If I don't, if I'm stealing, it's because I have some other God. I'm not trusting in God. I'm not... Uh, 
enjoying the provision that God's given me. I'm, I'm saying, no, I need more. And so on. You could go down the list. Look at Adam and Eve. God created them. They were in the garden. And, and, and they were perfect, right? And, and God walked with them in the cool of the day. They had a relationship with God. They had fellowship with God. They saw God for who he was. And they had no needs for rules. There were no commandments. There was only one commandment. Don't eat from the tree. But they didn't need a whole list of rules. They just needed to know God, love God, and follow God, and they were okay. So every sin, every violation of the Ten Commandments is really a violation of the first one. And this is especially true of covetousness. We're literally desiring something more than we desire God. When we covet, we also desire something more than we, co- than we desire our neighbor's good. So covetousness breaks the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? If we're being covetous, we're not doing either of those. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Paul doesn't just say it once. He says it twice. These things should not be named amongst believers. They shouldn't be a part of our life. Number two, fill in uh, defense and offense. The best defense is a good offense. In verse uh, five, or verse four, I'm sorry, it says, but rather giving of thanks. You know, when I played football, sometimes we would encounter a team that had this really high-powered offense. They would move the ball up and down the field real quickly. They'd score a whole bunch of points. And our strategy was always the same against such teams. We would try to stay on offense and, and just keep the ball. Because when we had the ball, they didn't have the ball and they couldn't score against us. And so we'd try to run the ball, control the clock, and, and just stay on offense as much as we can. And I, I think this is so true in, in so many areas of our spiritual life. I've heard this said that it's impossible to sin while you're giving thanks. Now, in our little group time, I found the exception to that, that Pharisee that said, God, I thank you that you didn't make me like this man over there. Right? Um, so, so I guess it is possible to sin in giving thanks. But I think you get the idea. If we're filling our mouth with thanks, giving, and we're praising God, it's going to be hard to be speaking of silly talk, coarse jesting, and uh, filthiness. Right? Because what's coming out of our mouth is what's supposed to be coming out of our mouth. We won't be using it the wrong way. When we're praising God and thanking God for the gift of sex in marriage, it's hard to be lusting. Thinking impure thoughts or making crude jokes is the idea. And we won't be doing it. Can I remind you that it was at the time where the kings would go out to battle that David was tempted by Bathsheba and fell into the sin, ended up having Uriah killed. If David would have just been doing what he was supposed to be doing, what God had called him to do and being the king, that wouldn't have happened. And I wonder how many times we fall into this kind of sin or this kind of trouble because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. If we would just keep our, our, our calendar and our time filled with what we're supposed to be doing, the enemy wouldn't have those opportunities to come and tempt us and to lead us into sin. 
of sexual temptation, whether porn, impure thoughts, coarse jesting, or lust, whatever it is, it's a problem for you. Focus on doing what you're supposed to be doing. Focus on prayer and Bible study. Focus on fellowship with believers. I guarantee you that the number and the intensity of your temptations will decrease. Right? How does the saying go that idle hands are the devil's playground? And number three, uh, fill in the word lies and ignorance. Don't be deceived by Satan's lies and culture's ignorance. Verses five and six, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I, our world thinks love is love, and it really doesn't matter what you do as long as love is involved. Right? That's kind of our world's philosophy when it comes to sex and love. And sadly, this is even creeping into the church. There's entire denominations that say that we can't condemn homosexuality as long as they follow a few biblical principles in doing so. They might say, hey, at least they're being monogamous, right? They're only sleeping with each other. It doesn't matter that they're both men or they're both women. They're being monogamous to each other. Or they love each other, and love is love. Who's to say that they can't express that love? Or in our culture, they may even be married. And yeah, they're two guys, and it's homosexuality, but, but they're married, they're monogamous, they love each other. It's no big deal. We need to make sure they feel comfortable in our churches. We need to stop calling homosexuality a sin is the idea. We see this all over. There's, I can't tell you how many churches have adopted this philosophy when it comes to sexual sin. But can I remind you that the most loving thing that we could do for a sinner is to tell them they're in sin and call them to repentance? Right? That's what Jesus did. That was his model. Because sweeping sin under the rug isn't nice or loving. It's actually hate speech, in my opinion. We must really hate the sinner to not tell them they have a problem. We're going to just not tell them how to have forgiveness and get to heaven. That, that's hating somebody. All that just because we might make them feel a little uncomfortable. That would be like going to a doctor and the doctor knowing that you have cancer and him saying, hey, you know what, you're good because he knows, hey, telling you you might have cancer might hurt your feelings. It might make you feel bad. It might make you depressed. But what kind of doctor would do that? You would be a hack doctor. You would lose your license if you did that. You'd break your Hippocratical oath. But how often do we do that in the church just because we don't have any boldness, just because we're afraid to tell people how much God really loves them, that he loves them enough to free them from that and to give them something better. Paul says in verse 5 here, For this you know with certainty that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes down on the sons of disobedience. God's going to judge is the idea. God is judging and he's going to judge. And over and over again throughout the Bible, God has demonstrated that he will judge such actions. You don't even have to get out of the first half of the first book of the Bible to find it. In Genesis 18, God judges an entire city called Sodom 
because of their sexual immorality. In Numbers 25, the children of Israel have gotten into sexual immorality with the Moabites, the people surrounding them. And God kills, literally sends fiery serpents to come and kill 24,000 of them. All 24,000 who had gotten into sexual immorality. God killed them all, every single one of them. And God will judge the sexually immoral of our day. It's going to come. There's no way around it. There is one way. It's through the gospel. And that inquires us going and loving them and telling them that they're sinners and calling them to repentance. In Revelation 21.8, speaking of the new Jerusalem, it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The next chapter, 22, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So God will judge, right? We can't buy Satan's lie and culture's deception that there is no judgment. Letter B, walking in the spirit or walking in light involves exhibiting the fruit of light. Fill in the word fruit. Verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. But we're to walk in light. Um, some translations, like the King James, have uh, the fruit of the Spirit is found in all that is good and right and true in verse 8. In other words, the fruit of light and the fruit of the Spirit are synonymous. The, the Spirit-filled reaction to darkness will be following four exhortations, is what I see here. There's four exhortations. Paul's going to give us that if we're in the Spirit, or in the fruit of the light, we will possess. And number one, we need to display light by not joining those in darkness. Fill in the word join. You see, the fruit of the light doesn't participate in the deeds of darkness. Verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them. Right? We, we need to be separate. We need to be distinct from them. The classic passage on this is 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 18. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. God wants us to be distinct. That's what the word holy means. It means to be separate, to be set apart. We're set apart for the Lord's use. We're set apart to worship the Lord. We're set apart to be distinct from the world. One pastor said this, you used to walk in darkness, but now you're proving 
We're literally learning what is really acceptable in the sight of the Lord, says Paul. Gang, if I sit in the theater and watch people indulging in their fleshly lusts on the screen, I'm a partaker of their activity. I support financially when I buy the ticket, and I vote for our culture to keep making this kind of movie when I fill a seat to watch it. There's a better way. We can pray. You know I struggle with my flesh, Lord. You know I'm tempted by it. But Lord, I want nothing to do with it. I have learned through your word by experience that sin stinks. I'm going to I'm not going to justify it any longer. I'm not going to excuse it anymore. Instead, I choose to walk in the light. I think that's a great example of how not to be partakers with the world. When we use our money, when uh, we're, we're voting, really, we're casting our vote saying we like that. We want more of that. We're being a partaker with this world system. But this world being, uh, this idea of being a partaker, it doesn't mean that we can't have any dealings with, right? It, it, because if we had no dealings with the world, how would anybody from the world get saved? How would anybody from the world or anybody in darkness ever hear the gospel? You see, Jesus was around lepers, but he never got leprosy. And Jesus was around drunkards, but he never got drunk. Jesus was around the sexual promiscuous, but he never had sex. You name the type of sin and Jesus was around them. He even associated with them. However, he never compromised in their unfruitful deeds. He never gave in. You see, that's what being a partaker with them is. Jesus was able to be around sinners and remain unstained by them. That's what James says that perfect religion is, to visit the orphans and the widows in time of need and remain unstained by the world. To be able to go to the hurting, the compromised, the afflicted, minister truth to them, to love to them, to point them to Jesus, yet not get caught up in the sins that they are in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We need to make sure that when we are around people that we're really there to minister to them, not to become like them. So often I see people and they're hanging out with unsaved people and their unsaved people are ministering to them more than they're ministering to their unsaved people. They're starting to take on the behavior of their unsaved friends rather than the unsaved friends taking on the behavior of them. We need to remember that we're in a light, a light in the darkness. We're there to expose darkness. We're there to illuminate truth. We're there to represent God's holiness, not to take pleasure in what they are doing. Number two, we need to display light by living out our identity. I don't fill in the word living out. Look at verse eight. It says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, God has translated us from darkness to light. Now we're to be lights in the world. We're to reflect God's light. We are to manifest his character to this world. We are to live out what he has made us. Number three, and display light by doing what is good and right and true. Feeling good, right, and true. Look at verse 9. Uh, For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Paul says that the fruit of light results in goodness, righteousness, and truth. This word, the fruit of light, describes the result of dwelling in God's light. God is good and right and true. As his imitators, Christians are to do what is good and right and true. Here's this trio of virtues that seems to be a summary 
of the ethical content previously covered in Ephesians, and it resembles the fruit of the Spirit. Those who walk in light do good works. That's Ephesians 2.10. They live righteously. That's Ephesians 4.24. In Ephesians 4.24, it says, Put on the new self, which is created in the likeness or which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And lastly, they speak truthfully. We saw that in Ephesians 4.15. It says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. So goodness, truth, and love, or goodness, truth, and righteousness are all examples of who God is. They're all things that Paul's already told us that we're supposed to be. And they're going to be accomplished through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Number four, we're to display light by pleasing the Lord. Fill in the word pleasing. Look at verse 10. It says, uh, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We need to make it our ambition to please the Lord. That was Paul's ambition. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, Therefore, we have this as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Whether you're here on earth or you're in heaven, Paul's goal, Paul says our goal needs to be to please the Lord. By living in the light, we might be the butt end of jokes, especially when it comes to sexuality. We're definitely not going to fit in with this world. We might be called prude or a holy roller or a Jesus freak. We might be able to be, we might be excluded from things. That's okay. That's going to happen. I get excluded from all kinds of things. You know, the first time that I had sex with, was with my girlfriend in high school. And I remember the only reason that I really had sex with her was because I wanted to be doing what my friends were doing. I wanted to be a part of the in crowd. It was really because of pure pressure that I gave in to that. And Paul's saying, hey, don't do that. Don't try to be the cool kid in the crowd. Don't try to please the world. Live to please God instead. Make that your ambition. Wake up every morning and say, I'm going to be pleasing to the Lord today. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm not here to please anybody else. I'm here to please God. My ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. So I ask, who are you living to please? Did you live today to please the Lord or did you live it to please yourself or somebody else? Letter C, walking in the light involves exposing the darkness. Verse 11 says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Number one, light exposes the sin of unbelievers. Fill in the word sin. The idea is, is as light, we are to expose darkness. You know, I was just in Israel, and we... One of the things in Israel that you do is you do shopping in the old city. And these shops are right by each other. They're connected and it's really dark inside. They don't have any windows or anything. And so you go inside and you're looking at things and you're like, oh, this looks kind of nice. But before I ever buy anything in the old city, 
I always ask the shopkeeper if I could take it outside and look at it in the sun. And what looked nice and looked great and perfect inside, I often take outside and I realize it's not what it looked like. There's something wrong with it. The material isn't real. You know, there, there, there's something off about it. You see, but I couldn't tell that in the store because the store was too dark. I had to bring it out into the light to be able to see the imperfections in it. And so often our friends and our family and even us, right? We don't see the imperfections in, in us. Or we don't see what's wrong with us until it's brought out into the light, until someone shines light on it. And then it's like obvious. It's like, oh, wow, like this isn't anything close to what I said it was or I thought it was. And so we, we need to bring things out into the light. You know, every now and then I'm at my cousin's house. We're having some kind of family get together. And one of my cousins will cuss. And as soon as they cuss, they look at me and they apologize to me. And I'm like, well, why are you apologizing to me? <laughs> you know, like, and they're like, well, because I, I, I cussed. And I'm like, well, you should apologize to God. He's the one that you sinned against. You, you see, but I love that because that's my light exposing their darkness. Just me being in their presence makes them feel like they're doing something wrong by cussing. Last year I was in Israel and my friend Omar and I were going to get dinner in, in Bethlehem. And this was something that we would do at least once a week. And, and so it wasn't unusual that we would do it. This time there was something a little different as he invited a couple other friends of his. I had never met him, but we went and picked them up. They were Americans. It was kind of neat. Um, and they, had, uh, they worked for the State Department. They had been in Israel working, doing some stuff. And, and they get in the car and introduce themselves, and I introduce myself. And, and then we're driving, and, and my friend Omar tells them, uh, this man and this woman, that, that I was a pastor. And the woman, her reaction was, oh, shh, that, does that mean I can't cuss? And, and then she was automatically all freaked out about it and all of that. You see, that's my light exposing her darkness. It, 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 it's, making, it's convicting her of her sin just me being in her presence. And that's what God's calling us to do, to be light and to expose the darkness of the world. You see, it should make sinners feel uncomfortable to be around us. It should even make them feel guilty to some degree. But we shouldn't stop there. In being light, we should show the source of our light and how they could find light themselves. And that's what we're going to find for point number two. Light transforms unbelievers into the realm of light. Philan transforms. Verse 13, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You guys see the pattern there? Verse 13, all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. So here's the center. The light shines on it. It becomes visible. And then everything that becomes visible becomes light. So the center's here. I'm the light. I shine on the center. And then the center becomes light himself. That's the end goal of it. There's a gospel focus. We're to make more light. See, our goal isn't to make people in darkness feel bad. No, it's to make people in darkness light. We must never think that we're better than the people in darkness, though. 
You see, because we were once in darkness too. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, immoral persons, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you are washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of God. You know, my sister's gay. I've told you guys that. And one of the problems that she has with Christians that she brings to me is what she calls the clobber passages in the world, in the Bible. These passages that speak of homosexuality being an abomination, things like that. And, and she's like, hey, you think I'm an abomination. That's what your religion thinks. And I said, yeah, you know, the Bible does call homosexuality an abomination. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through the Bible and find out everything else that God calls an abomination. And if you go through and find the list of all of the sins that God considers an abomination, every single one of us are on one of those. We, we all apply to that. You see, we were all in darkness. We were all an abomination to God. And we all need God's forgiveness. You see, the fact that I've been washed, that I've been cleansed, that I've been justified, that I've been sanctified, shows that I'm no better than anybody else. I was in the same position they were, and God just chose to be gracious to me and to do this to me. And now my job is to go out and to be a light to everybody else. And this verse also tells us that there's hope for everybody in darkness. You see, if God could save me out of my abomination, if God could save me out of my darkness, he could save my sister out of hers. He could save literally anybody out of theirs. That's why Paul came to realize and to promote himself as the chief sinner. If God could save him, this persecutor of the church, this guy who murdered Christians, he could be gracious to anybody. And that is the message that we need to share. In closing, God is light. We're to imitate him by being light ourselves. And if we're being the light God has called us to be, we will exalt God, not idols. We'll exhibit the fruit of light. And lastly, we will expose the darkness and bring it into light. I'll close with one verse. Uh, this verse I find encouraging, right? John 1, 5. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't comprehend it. The darkness couldn't pounce on it. The, the darkness couldn't put it out, right? The, the darkness couldn't extinguish it. And... And, and, and that is so encouraging. God's called us to be light. Go forward. Be a light. And, and there's nothing this world could do about it. Because it's God that's shining through you and in you. It's nothing else. It's nothing. something you're manufacturing. It's not something that could be put out. It's God. And Almighty God is greater than anything that's in this world. So let his light shine through you. Amen. So, Father, we do thank you for this word. I thank you that you have taken all of us out of the realm of darkness and translated us to the realm of light. Lord, help us to live that out. Help us to be lights in this world, Lord. I think of what you said about John, how he was a bright and shining light for a moment, Lord. And I pray that that would be the testimony of each one of us, that you would be able to speak of us and say, hey, they were a bright and shining light for a moment. They represented truth. They, they displayed my holiness. They, 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 they showed sinners their, their need for me, Lord. And I pray we'd be able to do that, Lord. So fill us with your spirit. 
Help us to be light wherever we go. I, I pray for those that aren't here, Lord. I, I know some people are sick. I know some people are on vacation. Some people have other things going on. Some people just don't like the heat, Lord. And, uh, and so I just pray that you bring them all back to us next week and um, we can learn how to walk in wisdom. But in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.